It's Monday, October 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Happy Monday, gentlemen. Happy Monday. Thank you, Chris. It is a happy Monday, and yet, here in Alexandria, Virginia, we are under a tornado watch until 5 p.m. So, so who knows? This may be our last Market Foolery. It could be like a stocknado or something. That's okay, like that, I so I, I received a question for you guys. I received that warning in our email. Yes, about one minute within one minute of a warning from the school that there was head lice going around at my kid's school. <laughs> Which of those do you rate as like more concerning? I tell you, I think I could make it through a tornado, okay, but head lice, God, that just yeah. sucks. I, I I agree. Like tornado still seems, and to all those who out there who have actually been through a tornado, I, excuse me, but it still to to me seems like oh yeah, that's something that happens to other people, whereas head lice is something that happens to me. It never has <laughs> happened to me, but it, it sooner or later, right? Sooner or later. Sooner or later. Let's move on before we gross out our listeners even more. Um, we're going to talk about General Motors. We're going to talk about Twitter. But let's start with where we are now with the federal government. We're in day seven, uh, day seven of the government shutdown, and we are 10 days away from the debt ceiling, which, Bill, I'll just start with you. To, uh, to a person, every market commentator I've seen is out there saying, "Look, this is this is the big one. It's the it's the debt ceiling." I think it was yesterday. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger were doing a, a sit down with with CNN, um, just talking about how this shouldn't even be allowed as a as a political weapon. Just remove the de- and both parties have done it over the last few decades. But this this really, when we're talking about paying our bills, this isn't new spending. We're talking about paying our bills. <laughs> We really shouldn't mess around with this. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to a general sort of risk-reward equation, um, and that is the the risk of uh, of what would happen to our credit rating by not paying our bills and, and uh, allowing this to um, interfere w- with all our payments is, is very high, and the reward is zero. There is no conceivable reward, and all the government has to do is – Agree to let itself borrow more money. I mean, there's no, there's, there's not even any effort involved, right? And there's infinite sort of downside and no upside to, to, to violating this, and that is why everybody believes the, that this will somehow uh, be taken care of. That and Boehner saying that he he won't allow it to to uh, occur. That that is the the violation of of you know. Uh, Letting the debt ceiling uh, interfere with with our payment, he's not going to. Jason, some people aren't worried. I saw the CEO of Moody's, which has an interest in in certainly uh, business in general, but uh, possibly downgrading the credit of the United States of America. He was on CNBC saying, "No, we're not worried about this. <laughs> this is not going to happen." I mean, I think that's probably the realistic approach. I mean, it's hard to believe that. I think Bill's right. There is no upside. The scary part is I think there are probably politicians out there that do believe there is an upside if they just stick their guns. But, I mean, the, you know, the, the realistic scenario is that there there is no upside. So, I mean, uh, come October 17th, you got to figure something will be done. But, I mean, you're already starting to f- feel this sort of reverberate through the economy, at least because it's being talked about more and more and more. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are not getting their paychecks, and even though Congress decided to go ahead and pass the the law that they would be able to retroactively, you know, uh, pay everybody once they get back to work here, that that still doesn't take care of the here and the now. Uh, not to mention the uncertainty which which we still face. So, I, I tend to believe they'll get it figured out. I don't think they would let the let the uh, 
the debt ceiling uh, deadline expire. But you know, I mean, this this is a pretty awful Congress that even with the ten percent <laughs> approval rating, I, is it I that really, high? I want to know who that ten percent is because it's just phenomenal that they would even garner one percent. I don't. I mean, but it's not this Congress anymore, right? I mean, it's us as a people, right? I mean, we have agreed. We have we have rolled over. We have allowed the gerrymandering, which r- requires that this is the kind of Congress that we will have for, I don't know, fill in the blank. It's not another two years. It's at least another 10 before you could hope to have some of these lines redrawn in a way that would in- increase some sort of participation by the middle in elections. So I, I-, I think this will happen again and again and again. Oh, I think that's a foregone conclusion. I mean, I think it's going to happen. So this Congress is not the worst Congress we've we will have seen. We're we're going to oh, see gonna get worse. increasingly yeah. worse versions. No matter what side of what debate you're on, I guarantee you, you are going to be convinced that this Congress was better than the ones you're going to see. We'll see about that. There was an, a story in the Washington Post this morning, and, and we saw this in. We've seen this over the last few uh, election cycles, um, where. Established members of the House or Senate uh, are facing primary opponents, people with solidly, in, in the case of the Republican Party, people with very solid conservative credentials being defeated. Um, and, and maybe the best example is in Delaware, where a couple of years ago, um, I think it was Mike Castle, who had served as governor, served in the House, and served in the Senate, and uh, was widely regarded as not only solidly conservative, but um, uh, very principled, very smart, thoughtful. He was a thoughtful leader, and was it Christine O'Donnell? Was that her name? The the the, the, like the that, woman yeah. who who ran a commercial that was parodied on Saturday Night Live about how <laughs> I'm not a witch. She had, she actually had an ad where she said I'm not a witch. Um, but the story in the Post this morning was about how there are now starting to be some business groups getting together and taking a long, hard look at some of these uh, members of the Tea Party and saying, you know what, we think we can find someone who is maybe not so set in their ideological ways. And oh, by the way, they actually care a little bit about business. Because I think that is what is a little um, terrifying for some people, and I think is is completely missing, not completely, but largely missing from the debate on Capitol Hill is, and you guys have touched on this, is is the business implications. The notion, uh, you know, they're thinking just in terms of this is going to be a win for us. And as you said, Bill, uh, actually, if we if we uh, if we miss that deadline on October seventeenth, it's going to be, as you said. All risk and no reward. No, no reward at all. I mean, no there reward. is there is something. I mean, it seems like politics certainly brings out the worst in everyone. I mean, there's not a lot. Uh, there's not a lot of reason for America's best and brightest to get out in the political system because all you know, all it is is just dragging your name through the muck to try to figure out who can win the election. So, I mean, I, I think that you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're getting subpar politicians because it's just not an attractive place to be in the first place. On that happy note, let's move on to actual companies. Uh, General Motors has some interesting news, which is that General Motors is expanding uh, an online shopping tool that allows customers to buy new cars essentially by completely bypassing the showroom. This, I, I, you pointed uh, this story out to me this morning, Jason. I read this, 
And the company that I thought of when reading this was Tesla Motors. Yes. This seems like a play out of the Tesla Motors playbook. Let's just go right around. Let's sell directly to consumers. Well, certainly Tesla is known for upending this this traditional dealership model that Ford and GM and and the like have have uh, you know played by for so long. And I think, I mean, for the most part, I think this makes a lot of sense though, because when you look at just e-commerce in general, uh, it still makes up a very small percentage of the overall uh, retail economy. But that number is growing very fast. From 6% this year, it'll, it'll just continue to go up. And I think a car is I think a car is a purchase that someone could reasonably assume they're going to be able to find the information that is most relevant to them online. I mean, you can apply for credit online. You can figure a lot of things out online these days. I mean, we we bought houses using uh you know virtual tours and stuff online so i mean it's it's it, there's something to that uh but it definitely is another way to meet customers uh, on their terms i think the biggest hurdle is probably twofold and number one convincing consumers that that this is okay because i think there are a lot of people that still have sort of that hurdle that they're having trouble buying you know a flat screen from amazon.com uh, and then, and then, secondly, is getting the dealers on board because there was there was a dynamic to this article where it seemed like uh, GM had sort of turned the screws on dealers to to upgrade and renovate their facilities uh, a little bit, uh, and now the dealers are questioning why they did that if they're going to be trying to steer more right. traffic online. I don't know; they'll necessarily uh, realize a return on that investment so quickly. But uh, I think, all in all, I think it's a smart move. What do you think? Well, I think the the major uh, hurdle is is the regulations uh, protecting the dealers. Uh, a lot of state regulations preventing uh, cars being sold in any way except through dealers. And in fact, th- this online uh, model has to go through dealers. Right. It's not a pure, as we think of it, a pure online thing. I I think for 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 me, for a lot of people, I would infinitely rather buy something online than than interact with. A person uh, and things that traditionally and, and whole industries have wanted you to think you need help with, whether that's travel. Uh, apparently, there are still travel agents. There are, there. and <laughs> don't, don't. I mean, with apologies to travel agents out there. Um, you know, I am perfectly happy to do all my own. Uh, travel booking and and happier when I do it than when I have interacted with with travel agents uh, and and car dealers are these uh, is not an industry and uh, where there's a great deal of love that I've heard of um, for the for the car dealerships so and there's know, there's not although I think that it will be interesting to see whenever this happens whether it's probably not this calendar year but in 2014 2015. I think we will get to a point where we'll see one of these showdowns, as we've seen here in Virginia, North Carolina, Texas, where you have auto dealers who have worked with the state legislature and their friends in the state legislature to keep Tesla out. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the next few years we saw that flip and we see some state legislature saying, you know what, we realize that this has been the model in the past and we've, we're not looking to take jobs away from auto dealers, but at the same time, we've got enough people in our state who want to be able to buy a Tesla. Or if, I mean, if I, one of my takeaways from this story was, well, if GM is, is already going down this road, no pun intended, yes, they're still going, you still have to work with the dealership. Uh, GM is, is not completely bypassing them. 
But this is a step in that direction. Yeah. And if you're Ford and you look at this and you think, well, the GM is making that work, isn't it a no-brainer for Ford to do the, exactly the same thing? Well, I mean, it does. I mean, it seems like it would make sense to do that. I think this is, again, the very the very beginning stages of what could be you know, upending this model completely. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot easier to check a box as opposed to, you know, negotiate with a, a car salesman or, or say no to them. I mean, it's like, you know, you go in there, you remember that Seinfeld, like when Jerry's going to go buy that car and Putty's the car salesman and he has Putty in a good mood and so he's going to give him the best deal on the car. He didn't even do anything, but then all of a sudden Putty and Elaine break up and now Putty's hitting every <laughs> little upsell on the car, like the Invisicode and the undercarriage washing and the rust protection. And so now you got to deal with saying no. You know, you have to tell this person, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. Well, it's a lot easier just to click a box and say yes or no, I don't want yeah. that. And then you, it saves you that hassle, that haggle uh, that, that I know I don't like. It sounds like you don't like it either, Bill. And I, I'd like to believe that most people uh, in the generations to come are going to prefer to do business that way as well. So. I, I, yeah. And on the other side of that is my father-in-law, who, who is a guy who has owned a lot of different cars in his <laughs> lifetime. And he loves it. He, 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 he thinks of it in terms of big game hunting. Yeah. He loves nothing more than it's like, hey, I'm, I'm an older guy. And I have money, and I have plenty of time. So I, let's just let's just spend the next three hours talking about this car. Everybody's priorities are different, Chris, and I acknowledge that. Um, before we wrap up with our final story, uh, I think I mentioned this on Thursday, but um, uh, from time to time we get emails from people saying, oh, "I wish I wish market foolery was longer." I wish, could you you know maybe, really maybe who, who writes in and says every that? once in a while we get that. I'm not saying they're thinking that today about this episode, You're but um, stuff up. but we do get that. Um, uh, we, I'm not saying we're going to expand market foolery to an hour, but we do have the next best thing, which is an additional podcast from the Motley Fool, and that is where the money is, which is. Matt Copenheffer and David Hansen are banking and financial services analysts over at Fool.com. They have a daily video show, which you can watch on YouTube, Roku, if you if you have uh, the Roku in your house. Um, but uh, their new podcast, Where the Money Is, is now on iTunes. It's on Stitcher, uh, presumably other platforms and as well. And is it an hour long? It like is not an hour are, long. Are begging you for but, but if long? if you're looking if you're looking for an additional daily podcast. Um, this is now available. You can add that to your commute. They go they go a good 20, 25 minutes, and they cover the banking and financial services news of the day. So just keep that in mind. Don't don't go into this podcast thinking, oh, it's, it's going to be like another version of Market Foolery. No, it's like a focused <laughs> version of Market Foolery. They are two smart guys talking about- There's one, content, you mean. There's content, and they're talking about one industry. So check it out. Kick the tires. Wear the money. It's a free podcast. Just check it out. It's got to be worth that. It's got to be worth that. Uh, let's wrap up by talking about Twitter because the, uh, the S1 filing to go public uh, became public- uh, after we had taped our last market foolery of, of last week, we touched on this on, on the weekly uh, radio show. But I am curious, and I'll start with you, Bill. I'm curious to know what you what you think of the numbers, that, uh, such that you have seen them in the S one. Uh, it seems like a lot of people are focused on a couple of natural things. One being that, as we suspected, Twitter is not a profitable company. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a sense now of of their user base, which is roughly one-fifth of what Facebook's is. I think their revenue was uh, about one-sixth, maybe one-seventh of what Facebook's is. Um, And they're not going with the... I think it's more like one-tenth. Is it one-tenth? Okay. Like what Facebook's was when it came public, Um, I think. uh, And 
average revenue per user, which is a metric that a lot of online companies use, that's not really <clears throat> the way Twitter wants you to think about their user base. But what what stands out to you when you look at this company with the new information that we have, keeping in mind that an IPO could come as early as November? Uh, it stands out to me that they want money. <laughs> that's, uh, they, they're going to raise money, and they're going to be like succe- to have it. They're yeah. going to be successful at it. Yeah, they're going to be successful at it, and a lot of people are going to take a chance on a company that has uh, a more an exciting future, but no profits. And a lot of people are going to uh, be scared by the lack of profits and the valuation that they are pursuing right now, uh, which is you know upwards of twenty twenty billion. Uh, and and I can see where they have enough money. They don't need the money to keep um, doing what they're doing in the near term. But they've got people who have been invested in the company for a long time, uh, founders, uh, the early investors who would like to uh, realize, look, the market's at a high. Uh, you've got Facebook uh, comfortably above its its IPO price finally. And you know now is a good time to sell. So keep that in, in you know consideration, uh, and, and the media is going to do a phenomenal job of whipping up um, attention around this. Uh, we're talking about look, we're we're talking about it, right? Uh, CNBC is going to talk about it all the time, <laughs> and that sometimes doesn't lead to a uh, better price for for a buyer. So keep well, that in mind, Jason. To one of the points Bill just made. Isn't now the exact perfect time for them to go public in Absolutely. the wake of what we saw last week with Burlington I mean, stores? Burlington and and for the love like- of God, potbellies. Potbellies, which last time I checked is still just a sandwich shop. Well, they justified that by saying it was going to be the next Chipotle, Chris. <sighs> and then after that, they went public. They do on- have very, very long, slow moving lines at Potbellies. <laughs> they went public on Friday and the stock more than doubled. Yeah, no, I mean, we've been talking about this for a while. I mean, there have been a lot of IPOs this year because it's been a great environment to IPO uh, your company. And, and I think uh, with Twitter. Yeah, they're they're going to push this thing really hard. It's going to be the headline for a long time, just like Facebook was. There are going to be a lot of comparisons to Facebook, and I know that you know Twitter uh, has something similar to Facebook's social graph. It's called Twitter's interest graph, and that's basically how they piece together the data, uh, making it relevant to their customers, which are big advertisers. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, I, I, on Twitter, uh, Aswath Damodaran sent out a tweet linking to his uh, recent blog post, taking a look at Twitter and sort of his ideas of valuation of it. Just to give just to give you some some context here, I mean, he looks at Twitter uh, with a six billion market cap, six billion dollar market cap, around ten dollars a share. He thinks it's a very good deal. At a ten billion dollar market cap, around seventeen fifty per share, he's indifferent. And at a twenty twenty billion dollar uh, market cap, which is I think. You know what we were kicking around here. He finds that to be a moonshot. Now he's he's a value guy through and through. But uh, you know, I will also say that uh, I, I think there's a lot to that because there's going to be a lot that Twitter has to prove uh, in order to to really keep you know the lofty valuation that it's sure to to garner from this. And I, I mean, I would encourage any investor out there to really just don't rush into something like this because because it's it's been a very very Good environment for IPOs, and, and there is bound to be a better time to get the stock at a better price. I was just going to say, it seems like we we know what the playbook is. If you're a retail investor, if you're just an average person like us, just look at the Facebook IPO, where if you bought on the opening day, a year later 
it was still below where you bought it. Whereas if you waited six months, like we talk about, hey, being a public company is very different from being a private company. You don't have to buy on the opening day. You shouldn't buy on the opening day and give them one or two quarters to see what they look like. If you bought shares of Facebook six months after they went public, you're doing a happy dance right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the opening day frenzy for IPOs is not usually conducive to great profits uh, as <laughs> as an investment. Uh, for things that get a lot of attention, you know, there there are plenty of things that don't have Twitter or, or Facebook levels of attention, and um, I, I think you know consider who's selling. You know, if if you love Twitter and you love what they do, and you think there are a lot of smart guys over there and who started it and uh, the investors who got in early and, and helped uh, make it grow and did the right thing and, and everybody was smart to do so, they're the same smart people who are selling their shares right now. And <laughs> just, you know, think about that. I, I think people will make money uh, as investors uh, off Twitter, for, uh, you know, by intelligently valuing the company, not by saying, well, if it's worth 10, it can be worth 20 billion you know that that's that's not going to get you i would i would read uh demoteran and and get a little grounding in, in a way to value it yeah and i think i mean just to flip that on its head a little bit and and sort of see it from the other side there with linkedin for example i mean that's one that when it ipo'd it's done nothing but go up essentially since then uh and it probably garnered the same kind of press maybe not quite as much as facebook but i think the genuine difference there is when you see something like a linkedin versus a Facebook versus a Twitter. Well, LinkedIn, we figured out, you know, they make their money a number of different ways. It's not just an advertising right. play, which is Facebook and Twitter advertising plays. LinkedIn, it, they have this, you know, tremendous amount of data that they are able to sell these licenses to these corporate headhunters and, and really uh, provide an extra sort of value and service to them. And so it's not just an advertising play, but, but they make their money a number of different ways. So, you know, I think that's just always encouraging is to take a look at these companies, understand what their market opportunity is, but further understand how they make their money and what they're going to be subject to. And do they have the ability to raise prices? And that's exactly right? Because it. that's what we've seen from plenty of great businesses. Starbucks, as Bill Barker reaches for his venti cup from Starbucks, not to be confused with the one in front of my microphone. Um, I mean, Starbucks, a great example of that. We've seen that with, with Nike, with Under Armour, with other brands where it's like, oh, yeah, people will pay up for that. I love Twitter. I'm on it every day, but I'm not paying them a dime. Well, online advertising, I mean, Google versus Facebook. I mean, Google has a modicum of pricing power there because that ad, that ad inventory is is very precious. People know Google, that platform, it's search. Facebook is trying to get that pricing power. They still haven't quite proven themselves out yet, and that's what they're working to do. Um, I would imagine at some point with a with a registered user base of more than a billion people that they'll you know get a little bit more pricing power as time goes on, and it'll have to be it'll remain to be seen whether Twitter can actually do that or not. Yeah, I, I, Facebook's got a, a ways to go on that, and and in some ways that's. I mean, I think of uh, the ads that I get from Facebook as mostly annoying. You know, <laughs> a think. subtraction from the experience, and the Google's ads to be occasionally Typically adding to the experience, yeah, complementary to what I, what I'm looking for, and you know, sometimes a little hard to tell what what the ad is. But you know, unlike Facebook, where I I really do see the ads and say. I wish that weren't there at all. <laughs> and, but I mean, that's that's in some ways that's a nice problem to have is yeah. is an easy act to follow uh, to get better at something over time, which they're uh, perfectly capable of doing. 
You can read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues by going to foolfunds.com. Sign up for Declarations, the free monthly newsletter from Motley Fool Funds. Bill Barker, Jason Moser, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, thanks Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah.